0: This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, we're discussing the bawdy, gluttonous and flatulent Falstaff by Robert Nye, with writer and academic Rob Spence. Falstaff is a masterpiece of obscene excess, telling the story of the medieval knight Sir John Fastolf, reportedly the model for Shakespeare's famous rake Falstaff. Nye's novel is split into a hundred chapters, and goes from Fastolf's conception on the penis of the Cern giant, to his death at the age of 81 but this is no simple life story. The chapters are not ordered in a linear fashion, digressions are frequent, and Fastolf opines on everything from his relationship with Prince Hal and his ostracization from the royal court to his dubious heroics on the battlefield at Agincourt. Along the way, he has time to give lengthy essays on his own penis, his possibly incestuous sexual exploits, and the different types of flatulence. The story is frequently distracted by descriptions of lavish feasts and copious amounts of booze. It's a novel Burgess calls Rabelaisian, saying it's a bold venture and an indication of what the novel can do when it frees itself from the constraints of Jamesian tradition. Robert Nye was an award-winning poet, novelist and critic, whose work was often inspired by his deep knowledge and love of literature. As a novelist, He's best known for writing postmodern retellings of historical and mythological stories, particularly the life and work of Shakespeare. Other subjects for his fiction include Merlin, Faust, Lord Byron, and the companion in arms of Joan of Arc, Gilles de Rais. Born in London, he settled in Cork, Ireland, where he died in 2016. Rob Spence is a retired academic. He has published on a range of modern and contemporary authors including Anthony Burgess, Robert Nye, Ford Maddox Ford, Louis de Bernier, Wyndham Lewis and Penelope Fitzgerald. His home on the web is at robspence.org.uk. Head to the description of this episode for all the relevant links and a list of all the books mentioned. I'm Graham Foster and I spoke to Rob Spence at the Burgess Foundation in Manchester in June 2023. Welcome, Rob, to the Ninety Nine Novels podcast. Uh, today, we're talking about False Stuff by Robert Nye, and uh, expect quite a lively conversation because it's quite a lively novel. Um, first, though, we we like to to start off the podcast by by finding out your own personal connection to the book. So, when did you first discover False Stuff, and what did you first make of it?
1: Um, well, I actually discovered False Stuff. Uh, and Nye as a novelist quite late actually, um, and it was um, the occasion was I was I was commissioned to write about Nye for one of the Dictionary of Literary Biography volumes. I think that was yeah that was in two thousand and two. So up until then I'd read um, some of his poetry. I knew him as a poet, but I hadn't read any of the novels. So then I had to immerse myself in the in the novels, and I think Falstaff does stand out amongst his novels as being the most interesting for for all kinds of reasons which we'll go into. But um, he's a considerable novelist, I think, and one who, certainly in recent years, has been sadly neglected. Do
0: do you think uh, that he was probably better known as a poet than a novelist at the time you you discovered him?
1: Yes, I I think so. But I I think this is one of the ways in which... Um, there's kind of a connection between Burgess and Nye, in that Nye, from what I can gather, wanted to be thought of as a poet, but I suppose being a poet didn't didn't quite pay the rent, so um, he started writing novels. So in the same way as, as Burgess, you know, sometimes said he wanted to be thought of as a composer, who. Who wrote novels as well? Um, Nye was uh, was primarily thinking of himself as a poet, and uh, I, I think would have liked to be remembered primarily as a poet. I mean, speaking of
0: Burgess's relation relationship to to Nye's work, why why do you think he chose Falstaff for his his uh, list of ninety nine novels, and what was the novel's reputation when Burgess was making his list in
1: nineteen eighty four? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I. I i wondered about that i wondered about um connections between uh between burgess and Nye. um the most obvious one i think is is giles gordon giles gordon was uh, a literary agent uh and also a novelist self-deprecating novelist he didn't think much of his of his own novels but a very uh, a very successful literary agent and he was uh, he's actually a dedicatee of Falstaff. Nye does a, does a, um, a, a sort of pastiche Shakespearean thing at the beginning, of the only begetter of this novel, Giles Gordon. Um, so Burgess and Nye were both included in Giles Gordon's anthology of experimental writing in um, 1975. Burgess submitted... I mean, Burgess typically... Recycling things, uh, submitted uh, an extract from um, his his book for children, um, "A Long Way to Tea Time." Nye submitted something, you know, much more uh, to the point, I suppose, uh, the, the thing that Giles Gordon was after in that um, in that anthology. Uh, Giles Gordon was was a friend of B.S. Johnson. And originally, that anthology was going to be co-edited by Gordon and B.S. Johnson. And apparently, Gordon rang him up to, to ask him something about this anthology and uh, didn't get a reply. And then the next thing he knew, uh, he discovered that Johnson had committed suicide that day. So he went on with the anthology himself. And it, and it is an interesting anthology um, dedicated to what they were calling... Experimental writing at the time. Um, Burgess's doesn't seem that experimental, but some of the other writers in there. There's a there's a thing by B.S. Johnson in there. There's Gabriel Joseph Pavici in there. Uh, Anna Quinn in there, who also died before it was published. So, um, so there is that that connection there. I'm and I'm sure I'm sure Burgess was was at least an acquaintance of of uh, of Charles Gordon, so there's there's that connection there. Uh, Burgess is obviously aware of Nye through that. Um, in terms of of uh, why choose that for ninety nine novels, I think as I said before, I think I think they were kind of kindred spirits. So I think I think Burgess was quite likely going to going to choose. Um, something of Nye's so by 1984 um, Nye published Falstaff in 1976 by 1984 he published two more novels well he published quite a few other things too but but two major novels Merlin and Faust and of course I think Faust would have interested Burgess very much because of Burgess's interest in Marlowe and Dr Faustus Um, so I think he's he's on Burgess's radar, as it were. Um, and I think Burgess, you know, when you think about Burgess um, in terms of his life as, uh, as a critic and a reviewer, um, he is, he does absorb so much. He knows what's going on across the literary world and, you know, across the humanities generally. So he's going to be aware, I think, of an interesting... Different experimental writer. Here is somebody writing in the in the seventies in a way which um, most popular writers of the time, or even literary fiction writers of the time, are not doing. You know, he's much less domesticated, shall we say. Uh, so I think that's the appeal to to Burgess. What would
0: you say that that Falstaff is a Burgessian novel? I mean, that's a bit <laughs> of a reach, but yeah. but. Do they share sort of DNA, as it were?
1: Um, it's hard to say, isn't it? Um, I mean, certainly, if you think about um, Nothing Like the Sun, uh, you think about A Dead Man in Deptford, they're occupi- occupying similar sort of worlds. And there is some similarity in style as well, because I think both of them, both Burgess and I, we might come on to this later, owe something to Joyce. And that sort of engagement with the nitty-gritty of life. You know, there's no, there's no, there's no sliding over, there's no kind of prettifying of, of circumstances that people find themselves in. Uh, it's very full-on. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that in Burgess's novels of roughly that sort of time, or you know, historical novels set in roughly that sort of time. And you see it in, uh, in Nye, not just in Falstaff, but in his other major novels too. Yeah, I, I once heard Burgess described uh,
0: rightly, I think, as a bodily writer. You know, his writing quite often is all about the body. And I think Falstaff is completely that. You know, it, it almost doesn't get past the body in some ways. But what was the novel's reputation in 1984, which was was eight years after after it was published?
1: Yeah, I do, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it certainly made a splash at the time. It won uh, it won awards um, for all staff. I think it won the Hawthornden Prize, and um, the Guardian Fiction, and the Guardian Prize, Fiction think, Prize. Think, yeah. So uh, you know, it, it, it's clearly it's clearly a, a, a major piece of work. But I think with Nye's... A career as a novelist maybe it's something to do with the fact that he thought of himself much more as a poet That he didn't seem to kind of pursue that he didn't market himself in that way which I, I don't know maybe is, is slightly odd because I mean certainly if he had Giles Gordon as his agent Giles Gordon's reputation was um, uh, was based on on getting huge advances for his writers he got a huge advance of Vikram Seth um, And I think for Peter Aykroyd as well. I mean, enormous, hundreds of thousands of pounds, you know, uh, in an era when nobody was was getting anything like that. So, but again, you know, I I think Nye saw novel writing as a kind of sideline to his true vacation, which was being a poet. Wow, yeah. I mean,
0: having read Falstaff, the quality of it as a novel... Mm. Doesn't suggest that Nye thought it his secondary creative activity. It, it's just such a such a well written novel mm. that it frustrates me that he could just throw it away. At the, like,
1: <laughs> well, oh. I, don't, I, I think again in in another kind of parallel with Burgess, I, I think Nye was to some extent, you know, a gun for hire. He he wrote, as Johnson said, you know, the only reason to write is for money and. Um, he was writing obviously he's writing his poetry. I mean, I, I read something interesting about uh, um, Nyes describing his, uh, the way that he approached writing poetry. He, he said at one point, "I wrote this poem after a hiatus, because I, I couldn't think of anything to write a poem about. The hiatus was seven years." So that suggests to me that here is somebody who puts writing poetry on a pedestal and the other stuff is what puts food on the table. So he was writing major novels like Falstaff, uh, but he was also writing uh, stuff for children. He was writing plays, plays for radio. He edited a book about sermons even. So I, I dread to think what he was putting in his books for children. <laughs> <laughs> he, I, I, he wrote a, a, a kind of version of Beowulf as well. That's right. Yeah. So you know he he's, he's spread himself very thin in some respects. I mean, I don't think you can tell that from it from what he was actually producing.
0: But go, going on to to specifically Falstaff, we all know Falstaff as a Shakespearean character. Nye's novel isn't set in Shakespearean times. It's set in the 1300s and early late 1300s and early 1400s. It seems to draw on history more than Shakespeare the the history specifically of the the medieval knight Sir John Fastolf. To what extent can this be characterised as a Shakespearean novel?
1: Yeah, it, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, <sighs> Shakespeare seems to have uh, fastened upon this character Fastolf Falstaff. I mean, it's one of the one of the amusing sort of lists in in uh, Nye's novel where he lists. You know, I, I can't remember how many, but you know, like thirty odd different ways of spelling Falstaff. So Shakespeare is is using a name of a character and somebody with, I think, some reputation, and certainly that obviously there is a historical figure, Sir John Falstaff. He he, you know, he was in, he was uh, uh, a major figure in the military. I think what you know one sort of interesting thread that runs through Shakespeare's Falstaff and Nye's Falstaff, and you know our general idea of Falstaff as a character because hes I mean he's a bit like well, he's not at all like Sherlock Holmes or what I was <laughs> what I mean was he's a figure that that somebody created, but who has stepped out of that and is now almost kind of common currency that everybody knows you know everybody recognizes that name and has an idea about that person in the case of falstaff yes he's a historical figure who seems to have been a very conscientious and gallant knight there was apparently a point where he was accused of cowardice which would fit with you know our 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 other image of, of falstaff but that turned out to be wrong and he you know he was nobly discharged from from the army and the only other thing about him that's interesting i think is that he became apparently very litigious towards the end of his life and uh, was pursuing all kinds of legal cases against people and was there, you know a very sort of uh, irascible old man at the end so shakespeare's taken some of those elements clearly and 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 put them into uh, the Henry Plays and Mary Wise of Windsor. But he's a fictional creation. What, what Nye does, I think, is is build on that and make Falstaff, obviously, in this novel, make Falstaff the central point of, of reference. So he's uh, this, this is Nye's um, method in other novels too. He draws upon previously published work and and build something very original out of that. So, to get back to your point, is it a Shakespearean novel? I don't think it is. It's clearly informed by Shakespeare. And I think for the reader, I I would guess most readers coming to this novel will know who Falstaff is, will maybe have, have... read or seen the Henry plays or Merry Wives of Windsor. So, you know, they'll they'll have an idea before they start. And that's what Nye builds on. He takes that character and then sort of turbo charges it. But to sort of play
0: devil's advocate, Nye is being a bit cheeky about the Shakespearean influence as well, because there are so many allusions to Shakespeare and his plays in not just the Falstaff plays, but all, all of the plays. So you've got a character called Miranda, for example. That's the Tempest.
1: Desdemona. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, and the list is endless. You know, even some lines, you, you know, he's lifted straight from Shakespeare. Some, some, some of the character's dialogue is Shakespearean. Um, what do you think he's doing there? Why do you think he's doing that?
1: Um, well, because he can. I I think it's well. It's it's kind of postmodern playfulness, isn't it? Really, Um, and it's it's a tease for the reader, you know. And and you know, as you say, you're you're reading this and you think, wait a minute, I know that line, and you know, it's it it adds a little um, a little frisson to the to the narrative, I think, for the average reasonably well informed reader. And and there's a kind of feedback loop again, isn't there? That okay, this is a novel from the 1970s, but it's about a man in the uh, 14th or 15th century, and it's actually um, using lines from uh, uh-huh. literature written in the late 16th century. Um, so that there's a, it's a... I think it's just a It's a really good example of the way that postmodern writers go about their work, you know, that... Old World's a stage, so you can just take all this stuff from from anywhere and feed it into your uh, into your narrative.
0: And I suppose Nye knows that most of his readers will be coming to Falstaff from Shakespeare, yeah, or, or familiar with Falstaff through Shakespeare's plays. So he's giving a little bit of a, a little bit of a tickle to that part of the brain. So, <laughs> exactly. Yes, yeah. I
1: think that's what it is. Yeah.
0: The other relationship I think that we we need to talk about. We've talked about a little bit but it's the relationship between this novel and Burgess's own works of Shakespearean or Elizabethan fiction. Nothing like The Sun, which is about Shakespeare, has Shakespeare as a character in it, and A Dead Man in Deptford, which is about Christopher Marlowe. Are there any similarities between these novels? Are they, are they completely separate, do you think? Or do you think there's some... For example, do you think Nye read Burgess's Elizabethan fiction? Or at least Nothing Like the Sun. Uh, well, right? yeah,
1: I was going to say Nothing Like the Sun um, published for, for the uh, 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth uh, in 1964. So I would be astonished if Nye hadn't read Nothing Like the Sun. And there are passages in, in Falstaff which are reminiscent of, uh, of Burgess in Nothing Like the Sun. Falstaff musing to himself, you know, those kind of incomplete sentences, one-word sentences, stream-of-consciousness type stuff. So I I think there are some striking similarities. Moreover, I think you have um, this this sort of relish for wordplay, which is obviously partly an Elizabethan thing, but partly something to do with both Burgess and Nye's interest in the capabilities of language. And I think one of the other very striking similarities is the unflinching description of everyday life, either in, you know, in, in Falstaff's actual historical context or in the Elizabethan context of nothing like the sun. They're very good at the practicalities of what life was like for ordinary people at the time, how difficult travel was. How brutal life was for most people, and they don't flinch from that. You know that's presented over and over again, um, both in in both of those Burgess novels and in Falstaff. So, I think it's as I say, I I I would be amazed if if Nye hadn't read uh, Nothing Like the Sun, and and I think there are some you know interesting parallels.
0: Yeah, I I think what you said about
1: both novels
0: being mm. in some way about language mm. is is completely right really i mean you read Falstaff and you're overwhelmed by the language even more so than nothing like the sun i think yes it's it's rich and funny and Burgess is is rich and funny too but in a in a different way in a less explosive way i think Burgess is more controlled than than
1: um. And, and, and Burgess has got a kind of narrative arc to to, to fill in, hasn't he? Whereas, um, I mean, one, one thing we've not said about about the the way that Falstaff is uh, organized is well, is that it's not really organized. Uh, you've got a hundred shortish chapters, and the, the the setup is is that Falstaff is dictating his memoirs, basically but of course he goes off on all kinds of digressions and uh in sort of entertaining a- anecdotes and so on he's dictating his memoirs lying if not on his deathbed you know he's close to death at that point uh, to a series of uh, of people who are, who are writing down his thoughts and and in the end he confesses to a priest in a way in falstaff there's there's kind of no organizing principle it's just here's another chapter, here's another thing that I remember. It's like a sketch show of a book, isn't it? Yes, Great. that's yeah. right, yeah, the fast show, yeah. yeah. He's, he's doing, uh, you know, he, you, you zip from one, th- one subject to another. Falstaff draws on his fund of experience and, and tells uh, his stories and anecdotes in a very lively and rollicking style. But there's no, there's no obvious connection between one chapter and the next. In the in the case of Burgess, when he's writing nothing like the sun, he he has this object of in in essence uh, covering Shakespeare's life from early early days in Stratford to uh, well to his final days in Stratford, with obviously the career in London in between, and and so he's he's obviously got a, a sort of a narrative arc to to work with there he's using deliberately language which is reminiscent of Elizabethan language but not academically accurate insofar as we know of course you know most of what we know about how people spoke um is is largely guesswork burgess frames his narrative by presenting it as a lecture a final lecture given by uh, somebody who is who is very similar to him, giving this lecture about Shakespeare whilst progressively getting drunker. So that makes the narrative slide about a bit towards the end, but it also gives him a get-out clause in terms of how uh, accurate the uh, the narrative is. And I suppose in um, in the case of Falstaff, you've you've got a a, a similar get-out clause because. Um, Nye produces a, certainly in the first edition, um, produces a title page, which is a kind of mock title page or, or that you might find in, maybe not so much in, in the time of Falstaff, but you'd find in uh, a 17th or 18th century text, you know, maybe something like Thomas Nash. And it's the actor domini of Johannes Falstaff or Life and Valiant Deeds of Sir John Faustoff, or The Hundred Days' War, as told by Sir John Fastolf KG. So we've got three different versions of his name already in this. Uh, to his secretaries, and it names all the secretaries, all the, the kind of amanuenses that, that are going to put all this down. But then, now first transcribed, arranged, and edited in modern spelling by Robert Nye. So... It's not quite the same framing device that Burgess used, but it is a kind of framing device in the sense that what's being presented to us is as if this is a historical document that has been, you know, magically found in in some. It's like those those narratives where somebody finds a you know a, a old bit of parchment in a chest or something like that, and he's edited it and arranged it for a modern audience. So that's his get-out clause in the same way that Burgess is framing devices uh, in Nothing Like the Sun. That's a really interesting thing because I've got a sort of
0: 1980s Penguin paperback version that's seen very better days. But that, the title page just says Falstaff, and that's it. So reading the novel without that sort of introduction or, or context is a very different experience, I think, because you, you don't have the get-out clause. So you're taking the language as nice, sincere attempt to, to make a facsimile of the language of 15th and 16th century England. Mm. And it's clearly not that. So do, do the readers of the paperback think that he has failed? Or, <laughs> you know, or... Well, I mean, that strikes me as a very important thing to leave out of a publication. Yeah, it,
1: it adds an extra layer, doesn't yeah. it? And, and as you say, it's, a, it's an important layer because it, it objectifies the thing that you're holding in your hands and, and, you know, gives you some idea of how the author wants you to perceive this. Unless he's, he's kind of playing a, a double bluff there, I don't know. Yeah, it, so it, it, does, it does offer a kind of get-out clause for the author because he can say, yeah, this is, this is a version of Falstaff's thoughts, which which have been mediated not just through him, but also through this succession of secretarial hands that, that have transcribed his thoughts. So, it, you know, you're, at, you're at second or third hand from the word of Falstaff. Speaking of the language
0: in, in the novel... Um, Going back to to Nye as a poet, um, how, how is his interest in poetry reflected in the novel and, and to what extent can it be categorised as a, a poetic novel?
1: I think very largely through the way that he uses language, there are, there are very few passages which just read as what you might think of as, as normal, straightforward prose. Uh, there are There are interventions, there are... There are bits of stream of consciousness. Uh, there are there are passages with you know long passages with with no punctuation, um, and there are passages where there's a deliberate use of poetic techniques. So you know one of the I'll just I'll just offer you this one of the many points in the, in the narrative which describe Sir John in bed with a woman. What we have here is. Sir John, or his amanuensis, describing how he approached Dame Millicent, it boils down to variations on the way that, uh, that he approached her. So, uh, just, just a brief uh, flavour of this. But oh now, Sir John, he would show her no mercy. He broached that proud dame. Sir John impaled Dame Millicent on his great icicle. Sir John made love to his lady like an avalanche. He had her, he joined her, he manned her, he managed her, he picked her lock, he pleased her, he ploughed her, and oh, how he possessed her. He rammed her, he rode her, he scaled her, he served her, he stabbed her, he stuffed her, he foined her, he tupped her. I mean, that's poetry. Is just presented, you know, without any kind of introduction or or any suggestion that something is, you know, that we're moving into a different mode here. This is just how it works. And and there's lots of examples of things like that where he moves into a much more poetic mode. And in fact, the whole novel really feels very poetic in that sense, and perhaps more so than, than Burgess's technique in Nothing Like the Sun. Yeah,
0: the, the the sort of poetic list
1: is a is a recurring motif
0: yes. in in the in the novel. There's uh, a list of names for his penis, which he seems very fond of. Yes, um, and there's there's a particular scene where his average menu is described, and it goes on for pages and pages and pages. And it it's talking about birds being stuffed into other birds and. And, you know, all the different sorts of wine or sack that he drinks. And the, these moments, I think, sort of sing with, with poetry, um, even though they're describing s- sort of everyday things or,
1: or... But they're not quite everyday, are they? No. Because this, this is kind of postmodern excess, isn't mm. it? So it's not just, he had a feast... And there was a lot of wine and there was a lot of food. It's, it's this great long list of, of the most exotic type of food you can possibly imagine. Uh, and then this great long list of all the various different types of wine and brandy and sack and all the rest of it. So it's, it obviously fits with with Falstaff, Falstaff's character. But it's also, I think, an example of that postmodernism that, that Nye represents in... Here and in other novels too, and it's one of the features, isn't it, of any postmodern narrative? You go for excess. You don't, you know, you don't just have you don't just have a, a brief description of something like that. You you go into massive, massive detail. Yeah, the, the lists in this book certainly reminded me of another
0: uh, postmodern historical novel, um, The Sotweed Factor by John Barth. Mm. There's a, a point in in that narrative where. Ebenezer Cook, the protagonist, walks in on three prostitutes sitting around a table. Yes. And they're just listing the names to each other that they have been called. And it Um, goes on for about three pages. Yeah, it goes on forever. (laughs) You know, it's, uh, um, you know, and there's there's French, there's German, there's all sorts of stuff in there. And it it really struck me that there are parallels between this novel and something like The Sotweed Factor, that sort of. Uh, historical novel that was being written sort of mid-20th century. Sure, um, yeah. in, in terms of Falstaff, though, do you think it's an experimental novel in the same way something like The Sotweed Factor is experimental?
1: It's a... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult label, I think, to, to put on any novel. And if I can go back to the anthology that uh, that Burgess and Nye are featured in, edited by Giles Gordon, the point of that anthology, and this was 1975, so it's immediately before he writes Falstaff or publishes Falstaff, the point of the anthology was to present experimental writing, and each writer has a little introductory bit to, to their contribution. And in it... Nye says something interesting, I think, about the whole notion of experimental. And what he suggests is, he says, well, you know, people think of experimental writing as this kind of modern thing about pushing the boundaries, uh, about doing something different. But uh, what he says is, actually, if you look back, there is a tradition of experimental writing. And he mentions Stern, he mentions Nash, Peacock, Swift... I think there's a sense in which Nye is consciously associating himself with particularly an English tradition of experimental fiction, which often celebrates, in the way that we've just discussed, that idea of excess. You certainly find that in Swift, in Stern, and to some extent in Nash as well. In Tom Jones as well, and and yeah, and to, I mean yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting idea. I haven't thought of it like that because you think of Tom Jones as being more sort of traditional, but of course at the time it's challenging. Well, it's it's forming how the novel works in in some in some respects at that point. But you've got the you know the the author talking directly to the reader and actually using a kind of framing device before each section. So yeah, experimental. Why not? So, yeah, so I think Nice's position is, yes, what he's doing is experimental, but he's not being experimental maybe in the way that somebody like B.S. Johnson was. He's being experimental in, consciously experimental in in a tradition that goes back hundreds of years. In
0: 99 novels, Burgess suggests another influence for Falstaff, and that's Francois Rabelais. Mm. Do you agree that 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 is a big influence on Nye? I
1: mean, Burgess says
0: it's Rabelais by way of Joyce. Can you support that statement?
1: Yeah, I I think you can support it. Rabelais was the most cited comparison in the the contemporary reviews of Falstaff. Although I think to some extent that's maybe a... Uh, a kind of easy way out, an an easy comparison to make. You know, it's Rabelaisian because it's rollicking, because there's lots of sex, there's lots of bodily functions. Um, So, so yes, you know, there's an obvious comparison there. By way of Joyce, yes, because there are elements which are reminiscent of Joyce, uh, particularly the um, almost stream-of-consciousness bits, uh, the self-reflective bits... So, you know, that's I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. But I think, you know, I, I think, as I was saying just now, I, th- I think Nye is locating himself within an English tradition which has other uh, influential figures in it as well. And the, the one I would pick out would be Stern, I think. I mean, if we look at the beginning of, of Falstaff, um, he's telling the story of his life and he starts with his conception which of course is, is how Tristram shandy starts in in the case of falstaff he's he's being conceived on the on the giant of uh, Chern Abbas.
0: on the tip of the penis isn't it
1: of course of <laughs> course yes and and that's that's going to be that's going to kind of uh, the motif that, that runs all the way through his life yeah and and actually uh, you know r- r- looking at this again uh, just preparing for for this talk it struck me that uh, not only is this reminiscent of the beginning of Tristram Shandy, it's also reminiscent of the beginning of Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie, because he he starts, I was begotten on the giant of Chern Abbas. That will do. It's true. Start there. And Rushdie, of course, writing some years later in Midnight's Children, says, you know, I, I was born... Um, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but, you know, he... He, he has to come at the exact moment of his birth, which is the key to the, the character, uh, because he's born at the stroke of midnight as India becomes independent. And it's, it's a similar tone, I think. I'm, sh- I'm sure Rushdie will have read Fal- Falstaff as well. There are so many connections, I think, with, uh, with Stern, the, the short chapters, the digressions, the, the scatological descriptions... The nose. I mean, of course, Tristan Shandy has a whole chapter about noses and the reader understands that we're not really talking about noses. Falstaff has his, his whole chapter about his penis, which you've mentioned.
0: And there's one about the nose as well, isn't there? There's
1: one about the nose which never actually gets to being about yeah. noses, uh, which, again, is another Shandian notion, I think, You know that you, you announce that you're going to write about something and then endless digressions come into place, and you don't end up writing about that. So the, the chapter about the nose starts by saying, yeah, I'll tell you about noses, and but then it goes on to something else. Before I get to that, I want to say this, 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 and this. And then there's a, I think there's a paragraph at the end about Bardolph's nose. Right. <laughs> That's it. Um, and, of course, the other thing that I think is is very reminiscent of Stern is typographical innovation, the use of diagrams and linear representations of things. So, of course, famously in Trisham Shandy, Stern uses, he, he uses a line to represent the flow of the novel. You know, the line moves up and down according to you know, the emotions and the action of the novel. Uh, so it's like a line plotted on a graph. And Falstaff uses a similar technique but he's not talking about the, the narrative flow of the novel. He's talking about uh, different farts in his chapter about farts and flatulence. You know, it's a, it's a very creative use of, of something that's actually invented 200 years before in Trisham Shandy. Another thing Burgess says
0: about Falstaff in his review is that it frees itself from the constraints of Jamesian tradition. What do you think he means by that? What, what is Jamesian tradition, first of all, and, and what do you think he means by that? And, and do you think it's a fair critique of the novel?
1: You see, I, d- I don't know what a Jamesian tradition would be. Um, if, you, you know, if you're thinking about Henry James and you're thinking about tradition, then certainly somebody of my vintage is going to think of The Great Tradition by F.R. Leavis, I mean, basically, that's about George Eliot, Henry James, and Conrad, who were his, his kind of big three. I think in Levisian terms, the, the, the great tradition is to do with novels which have a, a kind of didacticism about them. There's going to be some kind of moral payoff. Not necessarily people are going to get their just desserts, although I think that's part of it, but you know, there is going to be a moral dimension to to the narrative that, that will that will somehow be imparted to the reader. When Burgess says this frees itself from the constraints of the Jamesian tradition, I think one one obvious way in which we could interpret that would be, you know, there's no moral to be drawn here. This is a character who's reminiscing about his extremely entertaining and crowded life and giving you lots of fun anecdotes about what happened to him Uh, you know you don't have to draw the moral that he was an evil man or a good man or he did bad or he did good you you know you just have to accept this is a very colorful life and you know it's a joy to to be able to to experience that vicariously through the book so I'm presuming that's what Burgess meant but I'm, I'm not entirely sure I have to say
0: Falstaff, we should mention, is one of nine novels Nye wrote in his lifetime. Hmm. How does Falstaff relate to his other work? Are there there sort of through lines in his career?
1: I think there's a definite pattern to Nye's major novels. Uh, He takes a character from literature or history or both and builds an elaborate narrative around that character. So, Falstaff possibly based on a real person, well, definitely based on a real person, but largely influenced by Shakespeare's version of that character. Merlin, uh, obviously Arthurian legend and all kinds of uh, literature that he can draw on there. Faust, similarly, you know, all the different versions of Faust uh, that he can distill into, into his uh, writing. There's a novel about Byron, there's a novel about uh, Gilles de who is maybe like a dark counterpart to Falstaff, because he was Joan of Arc's knightly companion, knightly with a K, I mean, and he turned out to be a, a serial killer of children. So is it that that's a. You know, there, there, are, there are obviously some gruesome bits in Falstaff, but if you read the, uh, the novel about Gilles de Rey, that, that, that is very dark. So there's a definite technique there. There's a definite repeated methodology, if you like, about how um, Nye goes about his, uh, his, his work.
0: The, the thing that I, I think should be said about Falstaff is reading it, you know, almost 50 years after it was written, it's a timeless sort of novel. It, it's, it doesn't seem dated, um, perhaps partly because it's historical fiction, perhaps partly because it's playful, it, it sort of jokes and it's playfulness are dealing with sort of timeless things, like even, even the stuff about the body and the farting and all that sort of stuff. These are fairly base, timeless things, you know, that are, that are consistently relevant throughout history. So reading Falstaff, it struck me as a very sort of modern novel. It does strike me as a, a novel that is still alive. What, what do you think Robert Nye's legacy is currently, and do you see the influence of his work in any writers working today?
1: I think that's difficult to say. He's certainly not fashionable, um, because otherwise his, his novels would be in print, I, I think. And I, and I think, to, to some extent, we seem to have lost that idea of the big rambling, uh, massive uh, novel with hundreds of characters that that Nye was writing and that Burgess was writing to some extent. You know, if if we think of, going back to Burgess, if we think of Burgess writing Earthly Powers, I think he was quite open about the fact that he was writing Earthly Powers because that was the sort of novel that was popular at the time. You know, that that sort of literary fiction on a grand scale, covering, you know, a a huge timeline, lots of different characters and so on. We seem now to be in a period where the literary novel is much more domestic. It's much more uh, organised around a small group of people, a family... Uh, relationship between a couple, that kind of thing. And so you you don't really see that influence anymore. And maybe, you know, that's that's just partly fashion, a trend. Um you know, Burgess is writing Earthly Powers in nineteen eighty, or late seventies, uh, Falstaff is in the seventies. Did you notice also that Falstaff is eighty one, like Kenneth Toomey in Earthly mm. Powers. So I wonder if that if Burgess just picked that up somewhere. Yeah, so I, I don't think uh, Nye seems to have had much influence on the current generation of writers of literary fiction. Not in this country, anyway. I mean, I think there's still a tradition in America of those huge novels. Uh, so maybe, you know, maybe that's where that, that influence has gone. But I, th- I think these things, these things come around, you know, and, uh, uh, and I'm sure. At some point in the future, you know there will be. The fashion will come back for that kind of novel, and and Nye will be seen to be, you know, the the precursor of of those novels to come. Yeah, I mean, we should say that
0: Nye died in 2016, and and as a general rule, as a, after an author's death, there is a period, mm. um, where where the novels do fall out of print, and and there is a a sort of lack of interest, and then suddenly that all. Yeah. Start picking the the, the up revaluation
1: yeah. after a few
0: years, yeah, yeah. I was thinking about this question, and the the last book, sort of chronologically, that I can think of that that wears this sort of um, experimental uh, historical fiction that is playing around with with uh, fact and fiction and fantasy is. Um, Mason and Dixon by Thomas Pynchon which mm. was published in 1997 reading Falstaff I'm not sure if Pynchon has read Falstaff but the similar technique of going too far mm-hmm. is, is within Mason and Dixon there's a, a scene in particular where, where the title characters use mathematics to levitate an iron bath on the <laughs> earth's magnetic field to, to steal it from mm. a rich person's mansion, and that that struck me as the sort of excess that we find in in Falstaff. Yeah, and, Although, it's, and
1: it's also comic. It's, it's a, yeah, exactly. The image of that is is necessarily a comic image, isn't it? Yeah,
0: and I, I think it should be mentioned that Mason Dixon is also narrated by someone who is getting progressively more drunk as they as they are narrating it. So. That's um, the Burgess technique. Yeah, so whether or not and read Nothing Like the Sun, who knows? There's, a, there's an article in there somewhere. But yeah, so I, I mean, that's nearly 30 years ago, so I can't think of anything else that's been, uh, that's, been, that's been written in a similar style since then, really. Okay, we asked this question to everybody that we have on the 99 Novels podcast, and it's if you could add a hundredth novel to Burgess's list, what would it be and why?
1: Yeah, I did think about this. Now, Burgess, of course, um, in ninety nine novels is it's ninety nine novels from nineteen thirty nine. Yeah, we don't we don't stick to the
0: time frame. Uh, it's too difficult doing that.
1: <laughs> well, I have stuck to the time oh, well, frame. Sure. Um, so I'm going to suggest a novel that's that's at the beginning of his time frame, which is Patrick Hamilton's Hangover Square, because I, I think. It's Patrick Hamilton, I think, is a really interesting writer. He wrote novels largely to do with the lives of ordinary people, often poor people, in London in the 30s. But Hangover Square, I think, is... I think Burgess... He must have read it. It's a milieu that, that Burgess came to know very well. It's the kind of seedy pubs of Fitzrovia and... The characters are universally unsympathetic. You know, it's one of the things I, I find really strange about the way people talk about novels these days. They say, "Well, oh, I didn't like the characters." Well, okay, that's fine because they're not nice characters, you know. But it's a novel; you don't have to like them. And none of the characters in Hangover Square are are likable. But the thing, the thing I think that makes it stand out from Hamilton's other novels for me is that. It's set in the the months before the war, so it's 1939. He's publishing it in 1941, um, so he's writing from the perspective he knows what's going to happen. But of course, the characters don't know what's going to happen. They just have this sense of impending doom, which which hangs over everything in in the novel. So there's a lot of sort of existential angst in it. But it's a very evocative portrait of urban life in the 30s, that kind of drudgery, the fog, the dirt, you know, trying to to just get by on on virtually nothing. And it's it's brilliantly written and I think, uh, you know, would be a worthy addition to 99 novels. That's an interesting choice, and about as far away, by the sounds of it,
0: to Falstaff as you can get. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah. Rob, thanks for joining us on the 99 Novels podcast. My pleasure. You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Rob Spence can be found online at robspence.org.uk. For more information about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.